This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. You are listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y. L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Monday tells a story of growing up with three talented musical parents who are all phenomenal, legendary jazz musicians. She followed in their footsteps and studied the flute and piccolo. After a car accident damaged below her lower lip, She had to move from flutist and piccolo player to a vocal performer. At 23, she was discovered by a film producer from Japan and cast in a major motion picture, receiving an award for her performance. She never strayed far from her musical endeavors and is a jazz performer to this day. After the break, Jeff tells his story of a death in his family, which changed the way he viewed the world. Later, he moved from a small town in Maine called Buxton to Los Angeles to pursue an acting career, becoming a successful character performer. Here are their stories. Hi, I'm Monday Michiru. Uh, Monday is actually my first name, and Michiru is actually my middle name, Michiru. It's Japanese, and it was a name given to me by my mother who realized that um, she wanted to give me a name that would encompass the fact that I am of two heritages, which is Japanese and also American, actually American-Italian. My last name, Mariano, well, that's pretty Italian-sounding. So she thought, okay, we'll name her Monday because she's born on a Monday, and let's give her a middle name that's going to be Japanese and also starts with M. So I have three M's in my name. There you go. My boyfriend calls me Triple M. So my real name is really Monday Michiru Mariano, but professionally I just go by Monday Michiru. So I am born in Tokyo, Japan, but my mother's side of the family, my mother being Japanese, is from Kyushu, which is the southern part of Japan. And our family is from a tiny little village that is renowned uh, throughout Japan as the onsen, which is the hot spring capital of Japan, called Beppu. It's a very, very nice, quaint, charming little town. Anyhow, uh, but I'm born in Tokyo. Uh, for the first year, I was actually uh, stuck in the hospital <laughs> because this is in 1963, and my mother thought that the best way to keep me alive <laughs> was to keep me in the hospital. And that's not to say that she didn't have confidence in herself as a mother, but during that time, there were terrible outbreaks of the influenza, so she thought that it would be best for me to be raised by the doctors and nurses. And so here I am alive today, so I guess it worked. <laughs> Anyhow, um, but I grew up uh, a little bit in Beppu, 
which is the place I just mentioned with the hot springs. And I also grew up a little bit in New York and also a little bit in Los Angeles. So since I mentioned my mother, I should mention about my parents. I have three, and by three I mean my father and stepfather included, three wonderful parents who are all like phenomenal, legendary jazz musicians. <laughs> like not just one, but three. <laughs> my mother is, uh, her name is Toshiko Akiyoshi. And she is the first Japanese, not just the first woman, but the first Japanese to cross over from Japan to America. Um, she was invited by the Berklee School of Music to attend their school and to learn jazz. This was the year 1956 and Berklee had uh, started a program where they wanted people from other countries to represent uh, their country and to learn jazz in the uh, home ground of jazz, which would be America. And certainly Berkeley was probably the only school of jazz at the time. And the idea was that they then would go back to their countries and bring the language of jazz and sort of be the ambassadors of jazz. So my mother was, uh, was uh, chosen to be the representative for Japan, but she stayed <laughs> because at the school was my father, Charlie Mariano. He actually is one of the founders of the Schillinger House which was a school of jazz and improvisation that was started by my father and several other jazz musicians who lived in the Boston area. And that eventually morphed into Berkeley. So you could say he's sort of one of the founders of Berkeley. Um, Charlie Mariano is, was, he's already passed away, an alto saxophone player. At that time, he was probably renowned for his great solos with, uh, this, uh, the, uh, oh gosh, Stan Kenton. Is that right? Oh my God. I'm going to have to relook that because I'm feeling like I got it all wrong. Anyhow, um, he was a really, really great, amazing musician. And later in his life, he, uh, really fell in love with India and started to learn this Indian instrument. It's a reed instrument and I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> but it's like a reed instrument that makes these really glorious sound. Um, and he sort of became renowned for that. Anyhow, so backtracking to uh, Charlie. So Charlie and my mother met there and that's where, well, seeds of, of me <laughs> grew from there. And, you know, as time would have it, they uh, divorced and then she remarried. And this is my stepfather, Lou Tabakin. Lou Tabakin is another like phenomenal saxophone player. He plays the tenor sax, but he also plays the flute and is probably one of the most proficient doublers. And I hate to use the word doubler because doubler connotates that if you're a reed musician, you're going to sort of play one better, usually the sax, and the flute is like an afterthought. But in Lou's case, he first learned to play the flute classically, like super trained, went to conservatory and everything, and then moved on into tenor sax. So he's like amazing at both, has been uh, voted a million times by Downbeat magazine as, you know, greatest flute player, blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, so those are my parents so if I didn't go into music and went into something like becoming a lawyer or a doctor it would have been really funny I'm sure they would have enjoyed it but as uh, luck would have it I really loved music not necessarily jazz I mean I love jazz but I really loved music so I ended up uh, picking up uh, first 
<laughs> the um, harmonica when I was in school in Japan, and then、um, graduating to recorder.、Uh, I loved the recorder. I, I just thought it was the greatest instrument ever. And Lou,、uh, at the time, he was my father. He taught me the fingerings because the recorder and the saxophone are the very same. And then from there,、uh, a few years later at school,、uh, that's when、uh, the American schools usually have their music programs, and you pick your instrument and and you know you end up in a band or something.、Um, so we lined up, and I think I chose some instrument that was a little too loud or a little too big. And my parents said, "No, you are not playing that." I can't remember what it was. Trumpet. Maybe I don't know cello, <laughs> whatever it was. They said no, <laughs> so they chose for me to play the flute. So I picked up the flute, and well, wouldn't you know? I happen to be sort of good at it. <laughs> oh boy, that sounds really big-headed, but it's true. I, you know, you either have a talent for something or you don't, and I, I had natural talent. So I went on to, you know, win a lot of awards、um, as, as I was. Doing a lot of competitions and stuff in school, and I ended up getting a scholarship to the Interlochen Arts Academy, which is a really wonderful school in Michigan.、Uh, a lot of their students go on to, you know, symphonies and、uh, you know, opera singers and, and whatnot. So we have some really wonderful alumni that come out of there. Anyhow, as soon as I found out about the program, I thought this is the school I need to go to. So my parents obliged me. I got the scholarship, which was great. And I went to the school, graduated from there. Now this is a preparatory college, meaning it's really a high school. So the idea is, you go to that school, and eventually you're going to go into a great conservatory. Being a flute player, I wanted to study at that time. This is 1981 when I graduated. At the time, I wanted to study with Julius Baker. He was probably considered the greatest. Uh, flute player、uh, classically in America. He played with the New York Symphony. He taught at the top conservatories: Juilliard, Curtis in Philadelphia, New England Conservatory. I think. I think. I know. I. I, I know. I, I. I definitely auditioned for there. I think it was because of him. Maybe it was somebody else. Anyhow, but Manhattan School of Music、uh, and some other school. I can't remember. Anyhow, so I. Audition for all those schools, and I got into the waiting list at Juilliard. Darn, I couldn't get in.、Um, Curtis, they didn't even look at me. Darn it! But I got into Manhattan School of Music. Yay! However, the scholarship was only five hundred dollars. That's like enough to buy, I don't know, one book. <laughs> so、um, my parents are like, "You need like a bigger scholarship to go to college. It's just too expensive for us." All right, fine. So I decided to wait one more year. And during that year, I stayed at home. I worked, you know, little odd and end jobs here and there, and and I practiced. And I thought, all right, next year I'm gonna I'm gonna nail it. I'm just gonna be so good that they just can't say no. Two weeks before the audition, mind you, I've already applied. I've sent in my money. You know, I'm I've got my ticket to go to New York because I was living in LA at the time. And、uh, two weeks before, I got into a car accident. This car accident was the kind that, like, you know, I lost teeth. <laughs> I was limping. <laughs> yeah, back then, this is like again, 1981, 82. By then, we weren't as smart about seat belts, and I didn't have my seat belt on. I was going downhill. It was in traffic because I was on my way to work, and、um, you know, probably going like 15, 20 miles an hour. But when you're going downhill, You know, you could sort of、uh, catch some momentum, 
And um, I put my foot on the brake because in front of me is a Mercedes. And I'm thinking, oh, let me brake a little bit. Oh, there's no brake. What? There is no brake. And I suddenly panicked into this, what am I going to do? I'm going to get into an accident. I cannot smash into that Mercedes because we can't afford it. <laughs> That's all I'm thinking, like the money aspect of it. Like, oh my God, you know, they're going to they're gonna come after us. So I looked for a wall and there was this uh, house with a very big, firm, concrete wall. And I thought, if I smash into that, I think it'll stop the car and it won't really cause too much damage to the house. But you know, like, gee, what about me? <laughs> I'm not thinking about that. All I'm thinking is like, I just can't smash into the Mercedes. So I smashed into the wall and I was driving at the time a Datsun. A Datsun nowadays is called a Nissan. So being a Japanese car, it's light, meaning it folds up, <laughs> meaning it is not going to be so solid. So, you know, it was, it was by then, the momentum had maybe gone up to 30, 35 miles an hour. So it was, it was a pretty bad crash. Like I said, there were some lost teeth. <laughs> I ended up in the hospital. Fortunately though, um, I picked up the teeth. Don't ask me what propelled me to do it, but, and went to the dentist and I still have my real teeth. <laughs> I just popped it all back in, but you know, we had to do the, uh, root canal and whatnot. Anyhow, part of the loss of the teeth was that one of the teeth sort of, um, bit through the bottom of below my the bottom of my lip so sort of like the space between the bottom of my lip and my chin area and that that injury ended up uh, costing me the ability to play the flute because that's exactly where the flute rests um, when you blow on it so I couldn't practice <laughs> for the two weeks before the audition so I got off the plane I was on clutches I had like some sort of a soft, um, what do you call it, cast on my knee. It wasn't completely broken, but I had shattered uh, the, the, the knee cap. And I got to the audition. And by then I was sort of blowing, but I couldn't really blow right and perfectly. I wasn't getting anywhere near the sound that I usually got. And Julius Baker again auditioned me. Now, the year before when he auditioned me, he thought I was like an amazing piccolo player. <laughs> like my flute playing is really good, and but there's so many great flute players. And what made me stand out was that I could really play a great piccolo. Like I had great sound and, you know, could get all the notes really well and my finger work was great. Everything was really good. And I remember that audition, he said, wow, you could play in the symphony right now. And I was like, yes. So I went to this audition, now it's after the accident, and I do the audition with him again. And um, after the audition, he just looked at me and he goes, what happened to you? <laughs> and it just shattered my little heart. <laughs> I was 18 at the time, and I thought, wow, I really blew it, didn't I? I explained, but you know, no explanations are going to win you anything other than, oh, sorry that happened to you. Because, hey, the next person is going to come in and they didn't have an accident and they're going to play really good and they're going to have deserved an entrance into the school. So I ended up not getting into any of the schools that I auditioned for and it was heart, heart, heartbreaking. And at that point when I got home, I knew that I was facing either another year of practicing and hoping 
and maybe not getting into a school. And I had to really ask myself, is this what I wanted to do? Like, is classical music and playing the flute really the dream that I want? Is this maybe the universe telling me, you know what, girl, you might be, you should be looking at something else. And, and that accident, you know, <laughs> even though it was like really not a good way for the universe to tell me anything, but maybe, maybe it was sort of like a little grand scheme of, you know, the master plan sort of thing. At least that was the only way that I could look at it so that I could sort of still continue to have some sense of hope and some sense of self-esteem and some sense of, all right, let me redefine my life and my direction and really think about it. So that was a really huge turning point for me. I won't lie, I was really lost for a while because I didn't know if I had made the right choice. Music was the one thing that kept me grounded. It's sort of like my religion. Like um, I remember when I was 15 and, and a, a camp counselor, you know, she was um, uh, from Texas and, and a devout Christian and she was taking each of, uh, each of us from the uh, cabin uh, for individual talks and, uh, you know, and she goes, and do you have a faith Monday? And I said, well, you know, I'll tell you, my, my mother is, is, uh, Buddhist and I sort of follow probably in that philosophy. But if I had to say what's my, what's my, you know, spiritual lead, leader, it's, it's probably music. Like that's my religion. And I sort of really felt that way. Like it wasn't meant to be a smart aleck uh, answer, but I really, really felt that this is the one thing that always gave me direction, always gave me the answer when I'm in the worst trouble. And, and, you know, not to be corny, but music saves my life. <laughs> it really did. Anyhow, so I had to rethink everything. While I was at Interlochen Arts Academy, the last semester I was there, um, I decided to take the chorus group and to sing the alto parts. My voice is actually high. You could probably tell while I'm talking. It's high. I'm, I don't have a low voice. I have a high voice, so I'm probably a soprano, but I could sing the alto parts. And the reason I decided to go into the chorus group was because when you play the flute, you're always playing the melody. And I thought it would be good ear training for me to sing the alto parts, which is usually the harmony. And, you know, it might sort of uh, give me a new awareness and perspective to music. So I got into the choral group and the and the director's like, wow, Monday, you really have a wonderful voice. And I'm like, wow, really? Okay. And so he invited me to the more, you know, to the smaller group, which only had a few of the altos. And, um, and, and I got into the group. And that's when I discovered that I actually can sing. So when all of this was unfolding with the accident and, you know, the questioning of if I wanted to really continue doing classical flute, I suddenly realized that, you know, it doesn't have to be flute for me to continue in music. It might actually be the voice. So I started taking lessons and um, I started looking into possibilities, uh, starting to reach out and network with other musicians, with music producers and whatnot. So between the age of 18 until 23, as I worked in a regular you know, job as a secretary, uh, this is what I did. So that's sort of round one of my story. And now I'm going to go round two, because this was also a very defining moment and what led me, led me to where I am today. 
So I was 23 years old and at the time working as the executive assistant to the vice president at the international division of a film distribution company in Los Angeles. So international division means, of course, we have clients from all over the world and amongst them Japanese. So we had, um, I think, two or three film companies who used to come in and uh, they used to come in maybe once or twice a year, sometimes during, you know, one of those industry things where we're, you know, trying to shop our 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 movies amongst the other distributors and and the you know the film companies who come from all over the world and sometimes they would just come directly to our office so it was during the times that they would come to our office that I would handle them as I handled all of the clients you know hello mister whoever you know what can I get you to drink and okay Michael will be with you yada yada so you know, they see me and they see that I'm Asian. So, of course, inevitably they ask me, oh, you know, are you? And I, yes, I'm half Japanese. And oh, Nihongo mo shaberemasu And then I would start speaking Japanese to them. So they were just delighted. And eventually it would come to the fact that, oh, yes, my mother is Akiyoshi Toshiko-san desu. Yes, my mother is Toshiko Akiyoshi. So they were like, oh, my God, you're just like, you know, amazing. We love you. <laughs> you know, and I, I ate it all up. It was it was always nice to have those clients come in. They were really, really sweet and very kind to me. So one day, one of the clients, they came in and they had uh, with them a poet, a, a writer, poet, and also a um, lyric writer, this woman. And um, they invited me out for dinner with them. They said, well, you know, we have these uh, people with us and would you like to join us for dinner? Yeah, I'd love to. So I went with them. Now, mind you, at that time, I had already been sending out demos, making demos, um, uh, doing photo shoots, sending out the photo shoots, uh, um, you know, trying to find an agent and, and uh, audition for this. Uh, I didn't get it. Audition for that. I uh, didn't get it. So I had already been hunting for things and they knew this. So when we were at the dinner, um, they talked to the lyricist, the woman, Aki-san, Aki-yoko-san, Yoko Aki, very nice woman, very... Uh, connected, as it turns out, in Japan. So they said, you know, Aki-san, maybe you can do something for Michiru-chan. And, and I said, yoroshiku onegaishimasu. She goes, well, you know, I can maybe introduce you to some producers, and I know some people. And I'm like, okay, thank you. So I sent her my demo tape and some of my photos. About a week or two later, I get this phone call. And it turns out that it was a representative for a director who was making a film and uh, they wanted to audition me for the lead. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not an actor. And they said, well, it's actually perfect because this director works only with amateurs <laughs> because what he does is he chooses people who are closest to the character and then he directs them. He, he doesn't like working with actors. He just likes working with the car, you know, with the, with real people. And I'm like, wow, okay. And it's a part for an, uh, opera singer. I'm like, wow, okay. Well, I'm not sure about the opera part, but I'm certainly classically trained and I'm certainly a singer. So why not? So I went to Japan. It turns out that they had already been filming for eight months without the lead. Without the lead female, I mean, and the, and the funny thing is, the name of the film in Japanese is Hikaru Onna, which in English means illuminated woman. <laughs> I was like, okay, where's the woman? So I auditioned for the part, and I honestly believe 
that they were so desperate at this point, <laughs> like they have to get somebody now. <laughs> and I just sort of happened to fill those shoes. <laughs> so I got the film and in a matter of two weeks, I had to quit my job, pack up my life, break up with the boyfriend, he was not happy, <laughs> and move to Japan with two suitcases. And I got off the plane and immediately went to the shoot, like immediately. <laughs> it's like, okay, get her in makeup now. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And so that was my life for three months as we filmed this. And it was one of the most challenging and greatest and scariest、um, time of my life. But that was an Massive pivotal moment for me because it ended up that one of the producers for the film was the owner of a management company and a film company and a music recording company. So that started my career. And fortunately, I did well in the film.、Uh, it uh, earned me a Best Actress、uh, award in three different reputable. Um, academies in Japan. One of them is sort of like the Oscars of Japan, the film,、uh, the Japan Film Academy. So that really put me into a very good leverage that I was able to continue to work and continue to expand and eventually move from acting, which to be honest, I never felt that I was really talented in, but it was a great challenge and a great opportunity and I will never complain about it. Uh, but it did allow me to move finally into music. And from 1991, I started recording annually. And to this day, that's what I do. That's amazing.、Uh, <laughs> it is. I mean, what, a, what an intense story. Yeah. How about wh- where are you going now? Well, let's get, let's get from 23 to where you are now. now right. You, you, A lot of decades here. After the movies, you started focusing more on your music career again. Is that correct? Well, after the acting,、um, I moved on to a lot of different things because in Japan, they're very much about sort of spreading、uh, the awareness in as many entertainment platforms as possible. So it meant I was doing radio. I had two or three different shows at one point. It meant I was doing modeling and commercials and, you know, like brand ambassador sort of thing, which, you know, seemed so weird back then because growing up in, in America, you just didn't see actors doing that. Now it's a lot more commonplace. You know, you see, you see actors like reputable actors doing commercials for, for, you know, whatever it is, TV or,、um, Cars and stuff like that. But back then it wasn't, but that's how we did it in Japan.、Um, and I was also a journalist.、Um, <laughs> and would do like interviews for people and would end up on, I don't know, red carpet events and places or interviewing the princess or the, you know, to be princess of Japan. Just, you know, some crazy stuff.、Uh, things that I just never dreamed that I would be doing, but they were all challenging and interesting and scary. <laughs> Your creative process. Go in a little bit, go into a, that a little bit more. I know you write music. Yes. Now, do you do that at the piano? What's your process to get to the finished product? Right. So, 
Today, I completely compose on the piano. I don't play the piano, to be honest with you. Like, you can't have me sit at a piano bar and be like Alicia Keys and, you know, sing and play along. I can't do it. But I can find my way around the piano to at least find my chords and, you know, and compose that way. And then I write everything down. But back in the day, um, I used to uh, do programming. So if I wasn't composing in my head or at the piano, I was at my, um, there's a thing called the MPC 3000. It's an Akai programming drum, drum machine MIDI instrument. And it would, you know, uh, hook on to a keyboard and also a recording thing so that I could completely do all of my compositions there. And when I would do that, I would approach things sometimes very differently, which is I would compose based on sounds or based on a sample of a chord progression or create a bass line and then start creating around that. So, you know, my creative process in each instance is very different. Are you strictly a vocalist now or do you still dabble in instruments? Well, I do still play the flute. <laughs> in fact, it's become more and more uh, a thing that I, I integrate into my performances. I realized um, at one point that, you know, it's like riding a bike. Once you've learned and, and you've become one with an instrument, it just never leaves you. So, so yeah, it's very much a part of me. Who are your inspirations other than your family? Well, I have a lot of inspirations. Uh, being a child of the 70s, I was listening to a lot of uh, what was coming out of uh, the top 40. And back then, you had a really wonderful assortment of particularly songwriters. You know, uh, you had Joni Mitchell, Earth, Wind & Fire, Carole King, Steely Dan. There, there, it was such a rich time musically. So. A lot of my pop inspirations are actually from that era and yeah, and many of those artists that came out of there. Now you used to do or you still do acid jazz, is that is that correct? Well, acid jazz was something that came out in the late eighties and early to mid nineties. Um, and during that time, being a vinyl collector, I you know, would pick up a lot of stuff, uh, not just from America, but from the UK, from Africa, from all over the world. And amongst the stuff that I picked up, I noticed that there was a interesting trend, which also the, you know, Americans were doing, particularly in the hip hop sector. They were uh, sampling jazz records, you know, it might be a bass line or it might be, you know, like just a riff or something. And you, and you could smell the jazz in the hip hop, you know, and the same thing was happening in the UK where there was a lot of like, you know, you could you smell it, the little, little references to jazz. And being a child of jazz, it was something that I really, really was attracted to. Um, and during that time, I was looking for a musical identity. I did not want to be a jazz musician. And to this day, I don't consider myself a jazz musician, even though a lot of people like to define me as a jazz singer, but I don't think I am. I do make a lot of references to it. So acid jazz was sort of my my foot in to sort of starting to recognize and identify what it is that I wanted to express. And um, living in Japan, I was considered one of the pioneers of that scene out there. But I'm certainly not a pioneer of that scene. It was it was it was happening all over the world. Do you have any other artistic 
uh, qualities do you paint? Uh, no, you know, visually I'm, I'm pretty inept. <laughs> the only thing I enjoy and I think, oh, maybe I have a little bit of an eye is, um, since I started Instagram <laughs> like three, four years ago, I really started to pay attention to composition, like ph photographic composition. So, so that's something that I enjoy, but I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> it's nothing to write home about. Well, what is your main goal now? What's, what do you have coming up? Right. So um, my last album was recorded two years ago. It was called Naked Breath 2. So the two would refer that there is a Naked Breath 1. <laughs> so back in 2003, I decided to do a duet album. I do a lot of performances and recordings with bands or, you know, everything's programmed or it's a dance music and whatever it is. But I really wanted to strip everything down so that there was more of a focus on the composition and sort of have more of an acoustic and intimate feel to the to the sound. So I did my first album back then with a the guitarist, Adam Rogers, and um, he lives in New York, but I often tour in Japan. So when I'm in Japan, I tour with a Japanese guitarist there named um, Suzuki Yoshihisa, uh, sorry, backwards, Yoshihisa Suzuki. And he's a wonderful guitarist, like really fantastic. And I told him, you know, one day I really wanted to do a duet album with you. So I did that. I recorded that um, and released it a couple years ago. That is my most recent recording. And I have been slowly marinating an idea to do a recording. But, you know, these days, record companies are really struggling. I mean, it's, it's really hard for them. CDs don't sell. And uh, what was once a profitable venture for them is now highly highly risky for them so when they sign on an artist or a, a project they want to know that it's going to sell that they're going to recoup the money that they're putting into it and i'm not a commercial artist anymore i used to be but now i'm more interested in doing something for the art of music you know and for my self-expression because i think it's honest and i think that's what i'm about and when i perform it people really enjoy it so you know so i know it's not something i'm just doing for myself like hey <laughs> you know and people are like okay that's a little too weird i'm not doing anything too left but it's just not commercial so because of that it's really hard to get record labels um, on board so you know with that said the project idea is there i have the producer lined up and you know slowly writing towards it but whether it'll be recorded anytime soon is still up in the air. I am talking to one label in particular who's really interested, but again, it's the monetary factor in getting people on board for that. So so while that is, you know, marinating in the background, um, I'm, of course, keeping myself musically active and I've, I'm doing performances right and left. Just last week, I, I finished a performance over at a jazz club in New York called Kitano. And in December, I'm going to be performing for the Japanese American uh, Association, which is a really huge honor. And then, you know, there, there's always going to be stuff coming up performance wise. And then I started in the summer to teach. Um, teaching has been something that I've been really interested in. And I had in the past while living in Japan, uh, helped young Japanese singers to sort of, you know, maneuver their way around the recording studio or 
you know, or whatever it is that they're doing, just because I have so much experience at it. And I really believe in passing on any information I have to help the next generation. So when I moved to New York, I was, you know, thinking about the idea of teaching, but there's a lot of really great uh, vocal coaches here. And to be frank, I don't really consider myself that great a singer like I'm sort of a package of I'm a singer songwriter producer and that's what makes me unique but as a singer yeah I'm all right there's a lot of other singers that are better so I thought no I don't want to teach singing what is it that I want to teach what is it what is my niche and I realized that aside from songwriting it might be lyric writing um, and so I started investigating colleges universities conservatories to see if they have such a course and lo and behold none that I've found teach lyric writing which I find really interesting and also understandable because lyric writing is such a ethereal thing there's no real right but there's a whole lot of wrongs <laughs> so it's like how do you teach something that is so ethereal without rules and so this is something I started working on this summer. I taught a round of uh, classes for one session and it was quite successful and, and the students were super happy and it taught me a lot. And so I'm going to be doing my next session in the fall and uh, this is something that I really want to build on because I really, really love to teach. I really love people and I love music and I love the people who are putting their efforts and their hearts into it. And if there's anything that I can do to help pave the way for knowledge or a little inspiration or, or a seed that's going to grow into something for them, I am more than happy to nurture that. Are you done with your film career or is that something you might be enticed to do, uh, go back to? Oh, no, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not as in I don't want to go back to it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's... um. It's definitely a certain world. And hey, you know, let's be real. I think the film industry in in every country is extremely ageist and it is all about the looks. I'm 56 years old and I'm not going to be starting any Botox or any of that to try and enhance my skin or looks in any way. I am what I am and I'm very proud to be my age and I'm very proud of all the wrinkles that I've earned, you know, so, um, so no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm Midnight Agent Raw. And I'm Okami. We are the Super Media Bros Podcast. Each week, we give a comedically informative take on movies, music, television, video games, and much more. Put your shades on and listen to all episodes on SuperMediaBrosPodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, shades on. We're off. Hi there. Uh, my name's Jeff Davis. I'm uh, 55 years old. Good, glad to glad to be on here. Uh, let me tell you how I got a couple couple real turning points in my life that led me to where I am today. I'm, I'm actually a working actor in Los Angeles uh, from a small town in uh, Maine called Buxton. Not a lot of people leave. It's it's uh, most people are still there. The people I grew up with are still there. Uh, late, same homes, same cities, same towns. 
at an early age, uh, you know, when I was, I believe I was about, thir- I was 13, a lot of the kids were starting to, you know, small town, they were drinking and starting to smoke pot, smoke cigarettes, you know, you get into that age. And I had my big turning point then. Um, I was sitting in class one day and I, I got called to the office. Something hit me. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. There's this weird, this strange feeling came over me. Um, and I don't know if, what led, you know, to, to, to feel this, but when I got to the office, my, my stepdad's stepdad was there. That was even more strange because it was, why would he be coming to school to pick me up? So as we're, we're driving home, it was just quiet. I was looking out the window and not saying much. And his name was Elmer and Elmer's driving along and he was, you know, it was a tough thing for him. And he's a, an older gentleman, nice, nice, nice man. And, um, all of a sudden he looks at me and he says, I suppose you wonder why I had to come pick you up. And I just kind of sat there and, uh, didn't say too much and tried to figure it out. I said, you know, did something happen to mom? And there was a long pause and he says, no, he says, it's your brother. And my brother had gotten into some, you know, he wasn't, he was a good kid. He was 17 and had started getting into drugs a little bit and alcohol and, not a bad kid, but got into something that messed him up and caused him to be schizophrenic. And he had gone into a, a hospital at the time, and they released him and sent him home and said, uh, told my mom not to worry, he's not suicidal. But uh, she she left and, and went to the grocery store that day, and when she came home, she found him, and he had shot himself. At that point in my life, um, you know, my older brother, finding out that he, he commits suicide and, and what I saw the people around me go through, my parents, um, grandparents, all my relatives and myself, it, it just, it, it took me from being a, a kid to being a little man overnight. I went from a 13 year old to a 20 year old in, in the way I acted and what things I did. Just, it, it um, you know, from then on, uh, you know, when other kids were acting up, I'm like, why would you want to do that? Would you want someone to do that to you? Um, if, if somebody was smoking pot, I'd say, you know, no, that's no thanks. You know, I didn't judge people for what they did. I just, I knew that it would affect me and my mom and my dad, you know, they'd gone through enough. They didn't need me heading down a road that, that was going to affect their lives. So I just, I took what I saw and I, I just went in a completely different direction than what my brother had gone. And, um, you know, not that I was a saint, you know, I was still a teenager and I, but I had a chip on my shoulder. I always had, felt I had to prove myself. I, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't cause trouble, but um, I, got, I got in a lot of fights and stuff. So there was still a little, there was a, some anger inside me. And luckily at an early age, you know, when I realized that uh, that wasn't going to get me anywhere, probably in my early 20s, um, I grew out of that. And at that point, you know, I, I was not sure where my life was going to take me decided not to go to college because i couldn't see my parents spending money uh when i didn't know what i wanted to do so i you know worked in a grocery store and then i i got a job in a as an electrician for a while learned that and then my dad my stepdad worked in a paper mill which was a pretty steady gig so i thought you know I'll, i'll try to get in there gotten there it's a it's it's a union job pays good steady pay but i hated it i just couldn't do it something i wasn't happy um life was good i had a you know i had a girlfriend had a great family was making good money 
So I, I left that. I saved some money and, and started a business, uh, started a store. And uh, my girlfriend was a bodybuilder, so we did fitness and supplements and clothing and stuff. And still something was missing. I couldn't put my finger on it. And then one day a friend said, you know, why don't you take this acting class? And I took an acting class with this, this guy named Mark Pentalescu in Portland, Maine. I kind of I got a little, little bit of a bug there, and I did a play. And that's, this is kind of, but still, being from a small town in Maine, you don't think that that could ever lead anywhere. You just thought, well, that was that's fun. I, maybe I'd like to do more of this. So then I was sitting in my in my store one day, and I just was watching TV. This was probably six months, eight months, maybe a year later. Still, you know, life was good, but something was missing. And this young lady named Laura Bonarigo uh, was an actress who was in the play that I was in. I saw her on TV. And she was, she had gone to New York, got an agent and, uh, landed on a soap opera. And that's when boom, it hit me. That's, that's what I want to do. That's where I belong. Not New York, of course, because I knew it was going to be a struggle. <laughs> so I headed to Los Angeles, but I, I spent the next six months or so selling off everything. Um, talking it over with my parents and discussing, you know, I was 20, 28 years old, I guess, by the time I, I decided to get out of town and head to head to LA and uh, pursue what I didn't even realize was a dream and a passion, but uh, had become one. So on the, along the way, I stopped uh, at my dad, my, my my birth father, who was always in my life, but he had, they had moved to Arizona. So I I actually flew from Maine to Arizona, and I spent a month with him just catching up. And then, uh, you know, I had already planned on when I was getting to Los Angeles. So I went to a swap meet in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I bought a car and a set of golf clubs and drove to Los Angeles. And uh, be honest with you, I was a little lost. Uh, I come from a really small town, so it was kind of overwhelming. Not sure if I did the right thing, but I jumped right into it. I found a place to live. I found a job. I worked in a video store making $6 an hour, I think, enough to put gas in my car and pay for a room in someone's house. I rented a room. And I just started uh, sending out t pictures and you know, getting my headshots done. I just started knocking on doors and doing whatever I could, acting in student films and anybody who would listen to me. I still wasn't sure if this was what I was going to do, but then one day... I suppose I'd been out there about a year or so, and I went had about I don't know ten dollars in my pocket. I think you know it was it was rough. I didn't uh, didn't wasn't making a lot of money. LA is an expensive place, so I um, I was kind of down and sad, and I went into a Johnny Rockets, and I sat there and I I bought a, a burger and fries and a shake, and I just started tearing up. I looked around and I just. All of a sudden, that's that's what this is where I belong. Um, I don't know what it is, why that this is where I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to leave here until until I become what I came to be. And uh, that was oh twenty twenty seven years ago, I guess. And um, from that moment, uh, when I realized this, I was staying in Los Angeles. I think about uh, two years later, um, still struggling. I met my future wife, and um, within a year we had a child, so that slowed the progress down. But she was very, very supportive and, and uh, knew that 
you know, I wasn't happy unless I was doing what I was doing. So falling back on what I had learned to do, I, I, I became a handyman in Los Angeles to help pay the bills and it led me flexibility to pursue my, my acting career. And um, my wife, she uh, at the time was going to college and was wanting to be a lawyer, but she decided she was would rather be a mother. So she found a way also to make money. She became a swim instructor uh, going house to house private. So we worked for ourselves. So we, we were sitting, you know, sitting pretty good. That just was the beginning of the rest of my life. And here I am, been married 24 years, uh, two amazing boys, and I'm still, still plugging away and, and uh, auditioning and acting and, and uh, living the dream, as they say. You said that there were two life events that really mean a lot to you. What was the other one? Well, the second one was the day that I was sitting in, I had came to LA and I was just decided, you know, just didn't know this. Did I make a right decision? I, I didn't really know people. And that's the day that I was in Johnny Rockets. And I, I just was ready to, I, I didn't know if I was going to go home or what I wasn't, you know, it wasn't this acting thing. I didn't know if that was really what I was supposed to be doing, but something just came over me that day. And it, um, I just, I don't know. I can't, I can't explain it. It was just this wave of emotions. And I said, you know, I felt, even though I was lonely, I was broke. Um, and I was struggling to find my place in LA. I just felt like I was where I belonged. And I guess that was, I mean, so it wasn't really a big life event, but it, it was for me. It, it, it's what kept me, kept me on path to, to follow my dream and to, to stay in Los Angeles and, and that, I think that kind of led to me, you know, taking the chance and marrying, you know, getting married and settling down with someone who was actually from here. Yeah, I, that's to me, that's that was my second big uh, life changing moment. Why don't you talk a little bit about your acting career, kind of go into detail, maybe tell some some stories or anecdotes about uh, what you've been through? Well, um, early on, and like I said, I, I, I didn't I didn't study. So I wasn't, I didn't come to LA as an actor. I just come to LA as someone who wanted to act. I had done very little. I did like that one class in a play. So I, I'm not your typical actor, I, I guess. Um, but I just, I treated it as a business right from the get go. I, um, I worked hard. I mean, it was my, it, it, you know, it, it's been my life since I began. I don't, I don't do anything halfway. I, when I do something, I jump in and I learn by doing so. I mean, I was lucky early on. I met some good people. Um, I was, when I first came to LA, I did, you know, some background work and some student films and worked a lot of movies for free just to get resume and experience. And that's how you learn, I, I think, by, by doing. So I just continued on. And uh, I, I, I mean, I was lucky. I worked with... Uh, People, I met people in the video store that were actors. I met a, this great guy named Christoph St. John, who was on The Young and the Restless. He recently passed away, but a really nice guy who helped lead me a little bit and met some other actors. Um, I, as a stand-in, I got to work with Kevin Costner on Waterworld, and that was a really good experience. And it just everything, you know, I worked with Ewan McGregor and Josh Brolin, and then these things kind of kept me going and meeting these people and talking to them and how they had, you know, overcome things to get where they were. And eventually I started, you know, booking commercials, which actually helps pay the mortgage. Uh, commercials pay pretty well. They can. And I started booking some 
you know, a line here, a line there on some TV shows. And, but I was working, I was taking my, my children to school and then dropping them off. Then I would go to a handyman job and start working. And then I'd have to leave my tools and run to an audition, then run back, get my tools. I would run and pick up my kids and I was just harebrained, scatterbrained. So I didn't even realize it at the time. But my youngest, when he turned 15, he uh, got his driver's license. All of a sudden, um, I mean, I, you know, at this point I had been, you know, 20 years struggling. And I booked job two, three a year. and They were getting better. But I still wasn't booking at the rate that I really wanted. So once he turned 15 and got a, 16 and got his driver's license, it opened another, a whole new door. Um, I would go to an audition an hour early. I would sit there and concentrate on my role and, and get into the character. And when I, I just started booking. So in the, in, the, in the last, he's 21 now. So in the last five or six years, I've probably done more work than I did in the first, you know, 20. So that's, you know, my act degree. I mean, I, I, in, 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 in that time, you know, lately I've been, you know, I've worked on shows like, uh, The West Wing as early on and The Mentalist and, uh, recently Castle, Code Black. Um, I just, uh, I've been very lucky. I, I've worked on, um, you know, some big feature films, Wind Talkers with Nick Cage. I just worked on American Assassin a couple of years ago with Michael Keaton. And then this year, I just did a couple of independent movies, which gets, gives me a chance to even play a bigger role in a smaller film. Um, I just was in Texas shooting a couple of films. I finally got to do my first Western, which was really exciting. So yeah, as an actor, like I said, I've been, I've been lucky enough to, to work on some really good projects. Um, and one actually led me in a new direction. I, I worked with, Wes Craven on uh, The New Nightmare, which was actually one of my first acting roles. And it kind of came around full circle this past year. I got a call from someone in Ohio who was doing a toy con, which is kind of like a, a Comic-Con type event. Where, but they, they sell tables for vendors to come in and sell collectible toys. And out of the blue, I, I think he got my name from IMDb or something. He called me up and said, would you be interested in signing autographs at... A table and I was thinking why would anyone want my autograph you know I, I'm not quite at that level and he said no no we're in a small town and it's a horror themed and you were in Wes Craven's new nightmare and I think that people would love to meet you so I went there and through that show I met some great people who were young filmmakers in Ohio and they approached me and we had like a meet and greet and um they mentioned that they you know wanted to do a, a movie and, and did i have anything that i was doing and i had a script that someone had sent me it's actually a horror film and i told them about it and then uh, well, two months go by and i get a call from them and they're like look how would you come to back to ohio and shoot that movie if we could raise the money so that got me to thinking well, how can i you know can i do this so my last this past year i've been going back and forth with them putting together this horror film that will be my directorial debut um i'm going to go to this little town of van Wert, ohio and you know we're going to use a lot of local people it's a, it's a low budget independent and um we're going to bring in a few people from los angeles that have a little bit of a name but you know we'll work on a lower scale 
And I'm going to jump into another <laughs> chapter of my life by uh, head over heels and see if I can't direct a movie and um, and uh, you know take me to a to a different level. I don't want I don't foresee myself becoming a director. I'm an actor, um, but as an artist, I think it's a just another way to express myself, and I, I really look forward to to jumping into it and 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 getting a chance to to work with other actors and, and hopefully uh, help form them and lead them in, in, in the direction that, that I came and, and uh, let them know that, you know, uh, they can, you know, climb the same ladder and, and eventually be, become what, what I would call a working actor. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a movie star, but um, I've been, like I said, I've been able to do it for 20 some years and continue to do it. So I, I consider myself a blue collar working actor. So now it's, you know, hopefully I can help lead the next generation into uh, doing what, I, what I'm what i doing and what I enjoy so much. How about, um, talk a little bit more about directing. Uh, I know you said you're not really shooting to be a director, but what I'm interested in is what's, what the process is like. Uh, I mean, people hear the word director, but I don't think they realize how involving yeah. that is. Oh, right. Well, um, well, as a director... Um, I'm also producing and it's a learning experience every day because you, you know, from the get go, um, I have to put together a prod product, uh, package. Um, I guess we call it a business package to help raise the money. So the funding for it and, uh, that we can show people that what we're doing and why we think it's a good idea, what the story's about. We have to put together a crew that process is, is tough, um, but I, I did find you know people I, people I've worked with here, and then I've got people there putting it together crew. But we uh, we had to shoot a teaser, um, a little trailer teaser, short little piece that just kind of gives the feel of the movie to try to help also pitch it to the you know possible investors, uh, shows them kind of what we can do and what we want to do and the feel of the movie. Um, so that's kind of the producer as a director. I mean, like I said, I'm learning every day, but I've got to really just read and read and read the script. I've got to know every inch of it. Um, I'm learning about camera angles and I'm talking to my director of photography, my cameraman. So we have to learn how to take it from page, uh, to put it up on the screen. Um, and like I said, I've, I've been doing it for 20 some years, watching it and being on set and seeing what it will do, but actually being on the other side and now it's my project I've really had to you know I'm still we're not we're probably not shooting for another six months and hopefully by then I will feel comfortable enough to um, be able to show up and pull it off um, it's it's just there's so much more to you know as an actor you you memorize your lines and you get find your character you figure out who you're supposed to be you know who you are and you show up on set and, and you do it, the director will tell you, okay, let's try it this way or that way. But now it's my chance as a director to guide these other actors and uh, the camera and, and the flow of the film and make it actually, once it, once it becomes a movie, it's got to get up on screen and actually um, flow. You know, it's got to, the story has to be told through the moving pictures. So it, it's, it's scary. It's it's scary but exciting. I mean, um, I I think for me it's it's a great next step, and I'm looking forward to it and, and uh, relishing the opportunity to to do it.